Father in heaven, even at the very beginning of the Bible, um, we see the importance of listening to the right voices. We see the importance of what happens when we listen to the wrong voices. And so we pray this morning that we might hear your voice, that you might speak to us through your word. Thank you that you are a God who loves to speak. Thank you that you've spoken to us supremely in your son and in your word about him that we have in our hands. So might we see something fresh of his beauty this morning? And might we not simply have a a better grasp of 2 Chronicles 24? But would you speak to us? Soften our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning has lots of overlap with what we saw um, a couple of weeks ago as we were thinking through, as Matt was teaching the children, the voices we listen to. Um, It's an account, again, that makes us ask the hard questions about the voices that shape us, the words that we hear, the things that we build our lives on, and indeed the outworking of them. It's an account as well about finishing well, whether we finish the race well. It seems that sometimes those who are fruitful and who seem to be faithful, it seems are not. And it's an account as well that ought to, as we've seen week after week, point us forward to the one who perfectly runs the race, the one whom we can trust, the one who finishes to the very end, the king who lasts to the Lord Jesus. So those things will all come out. But before we get there, I just want to give you a bit of um, the stuff we've missed out between chapter 10 and 24. Uh, I know some of you are, are genuinely reading through and reading ahead, so this won't be a surprise to you, but others, I know it's, it's tricky to do that. So just a, bit of, a few of the things we've missed. Um, we've said that we are currently in the context of overall decline. We are coming down the helter-skelter, largely speaking. Um, But interestingly, between chapter 11 and 23, the news isn't that bad. There are some good kings in there. We are focusing in on the southern kingdom now, as Matt said. Um, And we do read of civil war with the north. We do read of kings that go AWOL and astray. But then there are some surprising glimpses of hope from these kings. So King Asa is a great example, or King Jehoshaphat after him. But then his son, King Jehoram, not so good. It actually goes a bit pear-shaped with him. Then after him, King Ahaziah, and he's pretty bad. We will learn about more. We'll learn more about him in a bit too. Um, so we're coming down the helter-skelter, but not as fast as we were at the beginning, and now it's getting harder again. And I want to give us a heads up. You probably noticed as Ruth read it, this is not a Hollywood passage. There's a health warning in there because things don't end well. That is, largely speaking, if you watch any sort of Hollywood-style film, um, most movies have a relatively happy start and then a problem, and then a resolution of the problem. Things get solved, perhaps they get a bit worse first, but then we go back up and a tick at the end, and it's happily ever after, largely speaking. The problem in this chapter is it's the other way around. It starts off happily ever after, And then it gets worse, and it finishes in a real mess. Which means with Joash's reign, it's a game of two halves. The first 16, if you like, we're on the way up the mountain. And then the last 10, we're tumbling back down again with an enormous big bump. 
Um, so let's have a look. The, the reality is at the beginning, we don't know it's going to be a game of two halves unless we read it carefully, but there is a clue there in verse 2. It's as if the chronicler is giving us a bit of a nudge and a wink to say, hang on, um, read it carefully with me. And you see, he says, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Great. All the years of Jehoiada the priest. Okay. Turns out that's not so good because as the passage unrolls, we see what happens in the second half matters because when Jehoiada the priest dies in verse 15, then the tone and the tenor of the passage changes entirely. The story goes wrong. Now, before we get there, and we will get there, we'll have a look in the first half and see some of the things that we can draw our attention to to be encouraged by that he does well with, how his ministry begins so well. And we'll see largely, as we've seen it week by week, it's, it's largely to do with the state of the temple because the state of the temple dictates the state of the worship of the people and the state of the worship shows something of the reality of their hearts or indeed whether God is at the heart of their community lives. And that in itself is a great question to chew over. Maybe one for home groups, but what is the state of our worship? By which I don't just mean Sundays, but actually the state of our hearts. What is ruling our hearts uh, as individuals, as a community? What are the things that shape us? How are we doing Because again and again and again through Chronicles, we see the chronicler pointing in to the worship of the people as to whether they are far from him or close to him. How might you answer that question? What is the state of your heart, the state of your worship? What are you worshipping? If I gave you a... If we could do a webcam on you for the week, it's a bit scary... Or indeed a webcam into your heart for the week. What evidence would there be to show us the things that you worship? The things that you care about. The things that shape you. Maybe that's one for home groups. But it's a question behind the scenes that's been there right the way through Chronicles. Um, And before we jump in, we're going to look at verse 7 as well. Because there's this lady mentioned, um, Athalia. And she will give us a bit of the context and the background as to what's gone wrong previously and what goes wrong at the end of the chapter as well. She's quite an important person in this part in Chronicles. Um, Her tentacles and her influence in this section of Chronicles um, stretch far. So verse 7, Now the sons of that wicked woman, Athalia, had broken into the temple of God and had used even its sacred objects for the bowls. Um, to find out more about her, we're going to flick back a couple of pages. So if you have a Bible, that'd be really helpful. Um, we won't spend too long, but she is an important character. And I recognise we have slightly skipped her, so I want to scoop up a bit of what, what she's done and why. Have a look at chapter, back to page 454 if you have a church Bible. Um, 2 Chronicles 22 and verse 2. Um, Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for one year. His mother's name was Athalia, a granddaughter of Omri. He too followed the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother encouraged him to act wickedly. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now Omri, if you remember, was a famous, awful king at this point. Um, Flick down to verse 10, or flick over to verse 10. We're just going to pick up a few of her episodes. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, 
she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family of the house of Judah. Um, interestingly, then Joash escapes, he's hidden away. And then pick it up at 23, verse 11 with me. Jehoiada and his sons brought out the king's son, Joash, put the crown on him. They pre- presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him and shouted, long live the king. When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and cheering the king, she went to them at the temple of the Lord. She looked, and there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets, and musicians with their instruments were leading the praises. Then Athaliah tore her robes and shouted, Treason, treason. So she thinks Joash is dead. He's not. He's been brought out, and now she wants to um, get rid of him again. Jehoiada the priest... He will come into our chapter this, this morning. Jehoiada the priest, then verse 14, sent out the commanders of units of a hundred who were in charge of the troops and said to them, bring her out between the ranks and put to the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest has said, do not put her to death at the temple of the Lord. That's important. Do not put her to death at the temple of the Lord. So they seized her as she reached the entrance of the horse gate on the palace grounds. And there they put her to death. And it gets a bit gory. But essentially, she and her followers and her influence and her Baal idols are all destroyed. Or so we thought. Because we'll see in a bit that's not quite the case. There seems to have been some sort of sleeper cell who then um, get activated a bit later on in in our passage for today. So back into 24, with Athalia on your radar, because she will be important in a bit. Joash begins his ministry at a very early age. He becomes king age seven. But notice then again that name Jehoiada the high priest is there with him. He had been there with Athaliah in the last chapter. And he is instrumental and important. He is Joash's advisor. Indeed, in the early days when Joash was still a boy, it's it's pretty likely that Jehoiada was the de facto ruler at the time. Interestingly though, We'll see in a moment as they begin to redo the temple. It's Joash who drives that, verse 4. Joash even who wants to initiate the restoration plan over against Jehoiada and the priests. And what they do is they say, well, let's go door to door. Let's take the um, collection tins out. We'll go door to door to all the people within Israel um, and see if we can gain money to restore the temple because it's in disrepair. Um, Joash says the priests and the Levites ought to be in charge of the money coming from the the public. There's going to be a national collection. And to to justify that, verse 6 and 9, he goes back to the Torah, back to the first five books of the Bible, and where there's a collection in the wilderness with the tabernacle. So it's as if they're reversing, they're going back to the good old days. And so they don't go door to door, but what they do, pick it up with me in verse 8, At the king's command, a chest was made and placed outside at the gate of the temple of the Lord. A proclamation was then issued in Judah and Jerusalem that they should bring to the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, had required of Israel in the wilderness. All the officials and all the people brought their contributions gladly, dropping them into the chest whenever it was full. Whenever the chest was brought in by the Levites to the king's officials and they saw that there was a large amount of money, the royal secretary and the officer of the high priest would come back and empty the chest and carry it back to its place. They did it regularly and collected a great amount of money. Maybe that's a surprise. There was a generosity among the people. The collection box is placed outside the temple 
The proclamation is sent out to the people, and the people respond. They come and they give. It feels, again, do you remember the end of First Chronicles? Do you remember that chapter with King David, his last chapter, looking to take the collection for the temple to be built initially? And he's generous, and the leaders are generous, and everyone's generous, and the people are united and excited to give to the temple of God. Well, so here. So here there's a unity and an excitement almost. It seems there's a, it feels like a way of blessing, the way of the good life, an obedience to God, a generosity to God at this point in the first half. It is worth saying, just in passing, we've always said that the old schoolhouse, which you heard about earlier, um, is not our temple at all. Uh, the temple under the new covenant is the people of God. We are the temple. We are where God meets. We are the bricks and mortar. Um, but it is worth saying, Morden Road, you've been incredibly generous these last six years. And the Lord has provided incredibly through individuals, um, through trusts, through hard work, through all kinds of things. Um, but I am aware that we will likely be having another gift day in the autumn. Um, the reason for that is we have no heating at the old schoolhouse at this point. Um, and so either we're going to need a gift day or you guys are going to need to donate jumpers for the staff team and for sunflowers and buttercups. And there's something of the reality of that. But Morden Road, you have been incredibly generous. It's been hugely humbling to see over the last six years how the Lord has provided each step of the way what we've needed at that point. Um, we're aware we have another need about to come. It's worth saying as well that the collection box outside the temple thing that we see first here in 2 Chronicles 24 seems to have continued as you flick through the pages of Scripture. Because do you remember, at the time of Jesus, he would see a, a widow and he would commend her for the little amount of money that she gave. She just puts a couple of small coins into the box. And it seems likely that that, that tradition started here and continued. And so the generosity of the people exceeds even that which was expected. They don't just carry out the repairs they need in verse 13, but then in verse 14, do you see, they, when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money to the king and to Jehoiada. And with it were made articles for the Lord's temple, articles for the service, for the burnt offerings and dishes and other objects of gold and silver. As long as Jehoiada lived, nudged, nudged, burnt offerings were presented continually in the temple of the Lord. Friends, it's striking and slightly concerning that Joash has made such a good start. Even that in verse 5, he is more excited that, than the Levites to start this collection to restore the temple. They, they are reluctant. It seems at the start even that he is perhaps one after God's own heart more than the Levites are. And yet there is that concerning sentence. It's very ominous in verse 14. As long as Jehoiada lived. Because verse 14 is followed by, well, obviously verse 15 and verse 16. Now Jehoiada was old and full of years and he died at the age of 130. He was, he was buried with the kings in the city of David because of the good he had done in Israel for God and his temple. He, he dies, he's honored like a king even though he's a priest. It's unusual, you've got a priest buried among the kings. That shows something of the esteem with which they held him, with which he was honoured. Honoured and blessed by the people, honoured and blessed by the Lord. You see that in his old age? 
And yet we've reached the top of the mountain there. Because suddenly we start to tumble down again the other side. And it's back to earth with a bump. And it just takes a single verse. In verse 16, we were reflecting on Jehoiada being buried among the respected kings. By verse 18, he's, he's forgotten it all. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the gods of their ancestors, and they worshipped Asherah poles and idols. It just takes a verse. It's a reminder, perhaps, of the way that our hearts are so fickle. Perhaps a reminder of the way that we, we need to take care with the voices whom we listen to. To, to not be arrogant. To, to surround ourselves with voices and people and words that will encourage us and help us. And so, again, as we began this morning, and indeed as the kids thought as well, who are the voices that we listen to? Which voices shape us and influence us? If I gave you a sheet of paper and you were to write down the voices that shape you, who would be on there? Are there particular people in our lives that, whom we listen to, whom we ought not to listen to, perhaps? Are there things that we read or things that we watch that shape us? Perhaps even there are unhelpful voices coming from within that shape us. Perhaps even there are unhelpful voices from the past that continue to shape us. And maybe we think, well, well I'm not that susceptible. I'm, uh, I'm secure. I'm okay. But from experience, we can be a people who are easily swayed. And we need to take care. Sometimes if you take somebody out of their supportive environment and put them somewhere else, suddenly it becomes quite clear that the, the roots were only very shallow. And you wonder whether that's the case here with Joash, because very quickly he crumples under this Baal party. Athalia's crew had not all gone, it seems. And so with Jehoiada out of the picture, so they take their opportunity and they get stuck in. It's interesting, they, they paid him homage, verse 17. Maybe we need to be particularly careful with, with the fact that people come to us at times with kind words and reverence and smooth-tongued. Perhaps they come and massage his ego. Maybe our hearts are particularly susceptible to sweet-talking salesmen who will come and give us what our itching ears want to hear. Clearly, at this point, God is not silent. God sends prophets. It's not as if God is not speaking, but rather like Rehoboam from two weeks ago, Joash will not listen. I think we're meant to spot the parallels. Um, it's striking. There is a theme that goes through this kind of final third of Chronicles of, of the voices you listen to, of the fact that people shape us for good or for ill. Verse 20, the action slows right down. Actually, we zoom right in on a particular prophet, a named prophet whom the Lord sends to them, a guy called Zechariah. And here we see that Joash is not simply crumpled with the way he deals with Zechariah, but actually he is active and wicked and rebellious. 
Verse 20, then the spirit of the Lord came on Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood before the people and said, this is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. But, But they plotted against him. And by order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. It's interesting who he is, the son of Jehoiada. And what they do, they stone him to death. And where they do it, in the temple courtyards, cumulatively show what an awful thing it was to do. Who is he? He's the son of his long-term mentor and friend and advisor. The, one in one, the person in one sense who will have been a surrogate father to him, advising him as he came into power as king. What do they do? They stone him to death, which was usually a a death reserved for blasphemers, for unfaithfulness. And yet here he was speaking out against blasphemy and against unfaithfulness. And where do they do it? He does it in the temple forecourt, a place of worship. Do you remember the last chapter? Even Athaliah had not been allowed to be killed there. Stoning, when it did happen rarely, would be outside the town in a place of uncleanness. But now this temple that they've repaired has been tainted. It's, it's dirty, it's unclean. We're meant to see the irony, we're meant to feel the pain, we're meant to see this turnaround in the chapter. We had such a good time climbing up the mountain and seeing what was going on. and what, they, were, they were restoring it and then suddenly we're crashing down and it's such a mess. And it's an awful event, and we're meant to see that. It's meant to shock us. I I think Jesus actually picks up on it explicitly and implicitly um, as he's teaching his disciples. Explicitly, if you're a scribbler or a good rememberer, then Luke 11, verse 49 to 51, Jesus, there he is condemning the leaders and the generation who have rejected him, that the Pharisees, and he says they reject him just as they reject the prophets before him. And so Luke 11 Um, verse i'll read from 47 Um, woe to you pharisees because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them so you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did They, they killed the prophets and you build their tombs because of this god in his wisdom said i will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of abel to the blood of zechariah Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. You see, rather than heed the voice of the prophet, they they seek to silence him. They will seek to silence Jesus just as they sought to silence um, Joash, Jehoiada. They did it with Zechariah, they'll do it with Jesus. Rather than hear the voice of God, they shut him up. They don't want to hear it. So explicitly it's mentioned there, implicitly as well. I can't help think, but when Jesus tells the parable of the the tenants and the son and the vineyard, do you remember that one? Do you remember that the vineyard owner hands the vineyard over to tenants? They're unwilling to give the rent that they owe, and they end up killing the owner's servants, and finally they kill his son. Again, it's a parable against Israel's leaders. They are self-seeking, they are not listening to the Lord. They're listening to themselves. 
and eventually they will kill the vineyard owner's son. They will kill Jesus. I think Zechariah will have been one of the servants that Jesus had in mind when he told the parable. Zechariah's final words, verse 22, are an appropriate call for justice and vengeance. It seems, may the Lord, may the Lord see this and may he call you to account but before a righteous judge, Zechariah longs for a righteous judgment. Actually, I'm told there's an irony in this as well, where this call you to account phrase, um, it can also mean seek you. And it's translated as such through the book often. So do you see, Joash, you did not seek God, and so he will seek you. In his just universe, you will be called to account, Joash. And he is. And the Aramean army come. And they do the Lord's will. You see, when Israel is faithful to the Lord, when they're living as they were made to live, so they could win victories with only a few soldiers... It didn't matter that they were outnumbered. But when they're not faithful, when it's the opposite, then they are powerless regardless of the odds. And so it is that Joash dies in verse 25. When the Arameans withdrew, they left Joash severely wounded. His officials conspired against him for murdering the son of Jehoiada the priest, and they killed him in his bed. So he died and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. It's a funny old chapter, isn't it? It starts off well, and then it goes pear-shaped. I wanted to pick up on two things, just in terms of stuff to mull over and chew on this week for application for us. Um, There's lots in there, of course, but just two things to zoom in on particularly that have struck me. Um, And the first one is the importance of finishing well. If this chapter were a 400-meter race, at 200 meters, Joash is in the lead, and he's doing so well. And then he stops. And he trips over, and then he starts walking off somewhere else. It's funny, I think in my younger years, I probably had a wrong and unhelpful view of the Christian life. I think in my mind, the older you get, the easier it gets to be a Christian. And the Bible does say that we will grow in Christ-likeness and we will be increasingly conformed into the image of Jesus. But our older years are not without challenges and battles, perhaps new challenges and new battles. I'm struck by the chronicler pointing out to us the way in which Joash does not press on and continue. So I want to encourage you as you get older. I recognize that's a sort of relative phrase, doesn't it? Older. Um, But but take care. Watch over yourself. Day by day by day, have Jesus front and center. 
at all times. Keep yourself in the shadows. We want him to be glorified and you not to be glorified. I think increasingly as we get older, we can want to leave a legacy for ourselves, to make a mark, to make a name, to be remembered perhaps. But, but finish well as you continue to want to humbly serve him. Perhaps it's to not consider your retirement, if there is still such a thing in a few years' time, as an opportunity for, for self-indulgence, which retirement can often be. The danger can be we are influenced by unhelpful voices in the way everyone else does stuff. Maybe not in quite such dramatic ways that end up being the issue for Joash. But the voices we listen to can continue to shape us. We can be running the 400-meter race and then we suddenly find we're going in the wrong direction. That those who start well, those who make progress, but then who listen to the wrong voices can get diverted. You, you Actually, you see it very often in the New Testament in a really sad way. There are many examples of Christians that Paul will speak of, for example. A, a guy called Demas is a good one. You can trace it. Demas begins well. In Colossians and Philemon, he will refer to Demas, Paul refers to Demas as a fellow worker in the gospel. But it's as if he doesn't end that well. Maybe 200 meters through the race, he's off doing something else. He's, he had once fought alongside Paul in the kingdom battles, but now he seems to have backed off. And so 2 Tim 4 verse 9 Paul writes to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, we don't quite know the extent of the desertion, what that really means. Paul describes that he has loved the world, agapeed the world even. But he's there in part to give us cause to examine our hearts that we might keep trusting Jesus today. And not to think that because we started the race well, then we can just drift. No, Joash shows us how to finish really badly. Second thing as well, just to note as we end, is I think at the first half we're meant to see the ideal, the first half of chapter 24, that is this priest and king combo one who, who loves the Lord and one who leads for the Lord. The Joash Jehoiada thing is a model that the chronicler wants us to reflect upon. He will mention this kind of combination a number of times in this latter part of the, the book. That the temple and the palace united. A leader who is in relationship with the Lord and yet using this power for the Lord's glory. I think in the mind of the chronicler, that is the sweet spot. And in, in a sense, it's a return back to the garden in, in Genesis. At the beginning, you see the place of perfect leadership from the Lord using power in the right way, and yet a relationship with him. Of course, as the pages of Scripture unfold, you encounter good leaders and bad leaders and mixed leaders and somewhere in between. And yet we long for this combination of priest and king of temple and palace, of love for the Lord and leading for the Lord. And suddenly onto the, onto the pages of history walks Jesus. One who knows the Lord and who loves the Lord. 
the priest and the king, the temple and the palace combines. One who is in perfect communion with the Lord, not wandering or drifting away, and so always using his power for good. As he would say, not lording it over as the Gentiles do. But rather he's a king who is kind and gentle. A king who always does what is right. A king whom we can trust. A king indeed who who lays down his life for his people. He, He is both priest and sacrifice. So that when his people get it wrong, and when they wander, and when we sin, then his sacrifice is enough for us. He is temple and palace combined. And so when you pull back and you consider Joash in 2 Chronicles 24, he helps us because at the start of his reign, as we're going up the mountain, the first 200 meters of the race, he shows us something of what it should be like, what it could have been like. But then when we reach the peak and we start to tumble down in the second half of the race, then Joash shows us something of how much we need King Jesus for when we get it wrong. He advertises both what it could have been like in the first half and then pointing forward to what we need in the second as we see a true king and priest combined. And we see that these kings, kings like Joash, are nothing compared to our king. And of course it's his voice, his words, that we need to listen to. Let me leave us in prayer and then we'll respond. Lord, help us to listen to the right voices, we pray. Help us, to, help us to be wise. Help us to listen to you. And we confess that so often the voices of this world can be so loud and alluring. Help us to listen to the right voices, particularly as we get older. Help us to trust Jesus each and every day, however old we are. And we thank you for him. We thank you that he is the true priest and king combined. He is where we see temple and palace intertwined. Thank you that he is a king who who knows you, and who loves you. Thank you that he is the king who is kind. Help us to listen to him, please. In Jesus' name, amen.